Good afternoon, Memorial, and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast for May 13th, 2020. And I hope everyone had a very blessed Mother's Day this past Sunday. I know we were tremendously blessed. Uh, Tracy and I were. Our, our son Nathan and Ashley, uh, their daughter Raylan, came to see us this past weekend. Uh, oh, what a joy to see them and to hear about the work at First Baptist Church that's going on in Floyd Data, Texas. Uh, Ashley is expecting their second child. Um, little boy, and they're going to name him Nash Ridgely Adams. So the combination of Nathan and Ashley is how they got the word, the the name Nash. Um, We are so proud of them. On Mother's Day, uh, we enjoyed worshiping online with our memorial family, uh, then getting together at Lake Belton with uh, our son Aaron and his wife Courtney and children Chloe and Beckett, along with uh, Jet and Haley and little Emma, and then also Joshua and Sarah. Now, my sweet wife had a great Mother's Day spending time with uh, kids and grandchildren. And oh my goodness, how they're all growing up so fast. And um, I want to take a line from my good friend who is now in glory with Jesus, uh, Ella Percy. She used to say of her family, and there ain't an ugly one in the bunch. And so I just want to add that to to our uh, family comment. There ain't an ugly one in the bunch. What a joy it is to to be uh, around them and to spend some time with them, especially in these these days of of distancing. Speaking of that, in a, a, a blog written by Eric Geiger and uh, shared with my, by my friend Kevin Cornelius, um, he stated a couple of reasons that reopening the church will be more challenging than, uh, say, closing the church. Um, one reason is that viewpoints are, are more divided. Um, when the decision was made to close uh, the churches, uh, people were on the same page and, and that it was good and the right thing to do for churches to close in the midst of the pandemic. What people and even church leaders are not on the same page about is when churches should reopen. Uh, there seems to be two opposing camps concerning this, and you know, I have great and godly friends on both sides. And the arguments seem to go something like this. Some believe church should reopen now. Flattening the curve was about not overwhelming the hospitals to a point where the sick could not be cared for. We've done that, so let's reopen. We must get back, uh, get our people back in physical Christian community as soon as we can. And going back to church will be a process for people that will take some time. Therefore, it's better to start that process now. That's one argument concerning that. Others, on the other hand, believe their church should wait until large gatherings can resume. If there is a surge in cases, we don't want faith communities to be responsible in any way that could hurt our witness in the culture. Although it's not perfect, ministry online is providing care and resources for people. If we open now, we are not providing church as a refuge and solace to people since the church they know will not be what we can provide. 
In other words, there's no child care, no children's ministry, masks, staying away from each other, screening uh, individuals, etc. Obviously, some folks are also squarely somewhere in between. With differing viewpoints, the potential for divisiveness among God's people will be greater during reopening than during closing. Listen very carefully. In our pride and fallenness, each side could accuse the other of not loving the Lord as much or not serving people well. Leadership and church staff will likely feel the pain of people in our church pointing to other church leaders and saying, See, this is how we should be responding. Let's not do that. Let's, let's live in grace. We must show respect toward the views and plans of others and remember that our ultimate unity is in Christ, not in our reopening plans. Also, please remember, we've never done this before. While closing the church has tested all of our leadership, our, our communication skills, our responsiveness, reopening the church will even more so. The mountain that we climb to close the church and move ministry online is shorter than the mountain that is still in front of us. We all need His grace. We all need His wisdom. May we be grace givers to one another in the middle of all of this. You know, today I'd like to, to share a psalm with you. I'd like to pray with you, and then we'll jump into our fantastic scripture passage in Hebrews 4. You know, we are encouraged and nourished by God's Word. Psalm 42, verse 4, reminds us <laughs> of the joy of going to church. It says this, it says, These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Now here it is, same verse, from the message paraphrase, it says, These are the things I go over and over, emptying the pockets of my life. I was always at the head of the worshiping crowd, right out in front, leading them all, eager to arrive and worship shouting praises, singing thanksgiving, celebrating all of us God's feast. <laughs> oh, I love God's Word. I'm going to pray, and I ask that you would pray with me. Almighty God and everlasting Father, we long for the day when we can be together again as a church family worshiping together, corporately, and in unity. I know that you are with your people even when they couldn't worship in Jerusalem at the temple because they were exiled in a foreign land 
And even then, you were with them. And God, you are with us today. Thank you, O Lord, for being with us. God, we count on your mercy for our past mistakes. We are grateful that your mercies are new each and every day. Thank you for showing us your mercy. Father, we count on your love for our present needs. I ask, Father, that you would provide for us what is needed each day. Even as you supplied manna in the wilderness for your people, you provide us today exactly what we need each and every day. Loving Father, we count on your sovereignty for our future. Father, you are the one in control of this universe. It is all your creation. It all belongs to you. Every person, every animal, every rock and tree belongs to you. Thank you for being a God who loves us so very much. Thank you for the gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray for the the souls of men and women that during this time, even this time, they would be coming to know you, that your Holy Spirit would be drawing them by your power, the power of salvation. Thank you, indwelling Holy Spirit, for your guidance and wisdom as we navigate these uncharted waters in the days ahead. Keep us sheltered in your loving arms. Bless us with your holy presence each day. Cultivate our obedience and our trust in you, growing us in faithfulness and also in fruitfulness. Father, we want to bear much fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the Holy Bible, in the the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. You know, expository preaching has fallen on hard times. Many are saying that people who who are used to television and other contemporary media uh, cannot handle a 40-minute sermon. Sadly, many pastors are heeding that advice. Some churches advocate, you know, 15-minute talks around a, a felt need, accompanied by short dramas to hold people's attention. They say that we should never mention sin or anything else that will make people feel uncomfortable. The aim is to make everyone feel good in church. But listen... Listen very carefully. That approach to ministry is essentially a denial of the power of God's Word to transform sinners and to build up God's people by exposing our sin and pointing to God's grace at the cross. Vance Havner once said, he said, There's no devil in the first two chapters of the Bible and no devil in the last two chapters. Thank God for a book that disposes of the devil. (laughs) I like that. 
Please open your scripture and turn with me to Hebrews 4. Um, as you'll remember, our study of Hebrews reminds us that Hebrews 1 and 2 focuses on the superiority of Christ, that Christ is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 3 sets out Jesus' superiority to Moses. You know, the book of Hebrews is addressing a congregation made up of Jewish Christians, some of whom have been tempted to go back to their Judaism. And so a very important and helpful argument to deploy that uh, case is to point out Jesus' superiority to Moses, the hero of the Hebrew people. Chapter 3 points out that though Moses was a servant in the Lord's house, Jesus is the son over the house. And though Moses failed to bring the people into the land, the promised land, Jesus' work has completed the bringing of his people into rest into that promised rest. And that argument is made in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Chapter 3 also points out that we are God's house if we do not harden our hearts. Chapter 3, at the very end, focuses on the experience of Israel in the wilderness where they were disobedient and did not trust in the Lord. And so they, they forfeited the rest that they would have had. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because of that unbelief. And so it's a warning against an unbelieving heart in this local congregation, but also for us. And, and going on, it says that Jesus is uh, the, the new leader. He, as the new leader, is, is better than Joshua. Um, and so let's pick up in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 11 through 16. God's Word says this. It says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through the following, the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These verses are our author's concluding exhortation, the application of his teaching regarding the rest. So basically, he's concluding the argument, he's given encouragement, and he's applying some application to the teaching that he's given. We see that there are three, I want to say, exhortations introduced by the words, let us. Not talking about a leafy green vegetable, I'm talking about let us. Let us. We are encouraged, therefore, to strive to enter God's rest, verses 11 through 13. We are also encouraged to hold fast to our confession in verses 14 and 15. And then in verse 16, we are encouraged to confidently uh, approach the throne of grace. 
Now notice in verse 11, the author warns, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through the following, uh, through following the same example of obedience, of disobedience, excuse me. Verse 12 begins with four. The connection is that Israel in the wilderness had God's word, but they disregarded it. See, we should not follow their example of disobedience to the word. It will do a powerful work in our hearts if we hear it. Allow God's word to expose our sin and obey it. Since God sees and knows everything, including our very thoughts, we would be fools to disobey His life-giving word. To do so would only bring certain judgment. In verses 12 and 13, this is one of the great biblical texts on the power of God's Word. The author has been warning the Hebrew church of the danger of cultural Christianity. His text has been Psalm 95, which refers to the tragic example of Israel in the wilderness. Although they had come out of Egypt by applying the Passover blood to their doorposts, they had come through the Red Sea and had been sustained in the wilderness by God's provision of water and manna. They did not trust God or obey His word. Even though they'd been through all of that, they didn't trust Him or obey His word. And as a result, they failed to enter God's rest, which is a picture, if you will, of salvation. Because God's word, listen, because God's word is powerful to expose our sin and God himself sees everything, we must be diligent to have our rights heart before, hearts right before him. I mean, God Himself sees everything, including our deepest thoughts and motives. See, the author moves from God's penetrating Word to God Himself, who sees everything. I mean, it's impossible. It's impossible for us to hide from God. I mean, Adam and Eve tried to hide from God after they sinned, but they couldn't do it, and neither can we. I mean, the word open here in this passage, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Verse 13, the word open means naked. I mean, have you ever dreamed, (laughs) you know, had one of those nightmares, if you will, that you were naked in public? What a relief after a dream like that to wake up and realize that it was only a dream. But folks, we stand naked on the inside, before God. See, laid bare is used only here in the New Testament and rarely anywhere else. It means to expose the neck, perhaps as a sacrificial victim's neck is exposed before the knife slices the jugular vein. The idea of the two words together is that we are naked and helpless before God. See, there is no escape from his omniscient gaze, his his view, his watching us. See, sin is always stupid. Because even if we fool everyone else on earth and think we got away with it, 
We didn't fool God. Since we all give an account to God, we must be diligent to have our hearts right before Him. The final phrase in verse 13 means either Him with whom we have to do or Him to whom we must give an account. We know that one day, one day, we will all stand before God to give an account of our deeds that we have done in the body. Therefore, we should have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him, not just outwardly, but on the heart level. See, if that thought terrifies you, then keep on reading. Keep on reading God's Word in this passage. The author will go on to show how Jesus is our sympathetic high priest who invites us to draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in our, and to help in our time of need. But you must make sure that he is truly your high priest in the most personal sense. Folks, there is no group plan of salvation. It's not enough to be part of the company of God's people. We must be diligently personal to enter God's rest through faith in Christ and obedience to His Word. See, every true believer will develop the habit of judging sin on the heart and thought level out of a desire to please the Savior who gave Himself for us on the cross. Now, if we read Hebrews 12 in context, we learn that the the writer is explaining something something he had previously stated. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. This verse is still applicable to the Word of God in general. But I believe that was not the specific intent of the writer. He was primarily referring to the Word of God that he had just warned them with. In other words, God's Word from Psalm 95, verse 7. But now in verse 12, the writer explains why the word of warning is effective and why they should take heed to the warning. He's talking about the word of God. He says, for the word of God, it's not the word of man. I mean, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. It came down from heaven. It's not from this earth. The writers were merely human agents moved by the Spirit who used their own personalities. So when you receive the Word of God, you are in a a sense receiving God. You're receiving Him. To reject the Word of God, you're rejecting God. See, the Word of God is living in its essence. This is an amazing statement, which we too often just read past it. The Bible is the living Word of God. It has a pulse. It has the mind of God in it. It speaks to us. It runs after us. It lays hold of us. See, in the Greek sentence here, zon, from the word zo, zoe, 
is the word living. It is the first word in this sentence which literally would read, living for the word of God is. This draws our attention and it emphasizes the quality of the word of God. God wants to make sure we grasp that this is not like any other book ever written. All the other books written are dead books. And because God's Word is alive, it speaks to every person in every culture, in every country, addressing them where they are and telling them exactly what they need to hear. There is no book more relevant for your life than God's Word, the Bible, the Holy Bible. It's never empty. It's never lifeless. It's never flat. It's never tired. It's never sluggish. Oh, we may be sluggish. We may be dull, but the Bible is never dull. It's never boring. It always has like an electrical current surging through it. It's dynamic. It has inherent life within and power. (laughs) Listen, it's not the preacher that makes the Bible come alive. The Bible is alive and gives life to the preacher and anyone else who will receive it with faith. You know, I'm amazed because often people wonder how my message could be so relevant to their life. They sometimes honestly wonder if I have some secret information, you know, about their life or something, like like I've been reading their mail or something. But it isn't necessarily the preacher at all. Listen, it's the sharpness of the Word of God, delivering the message in just the right place. John Flavel, he says that the Scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying. See, the Bible is active, effective, powerful, productive, capable of causing things to happen. The Bible is energetic and never just sits still, never takes a day off. It's always at work. It's tireless because it is the living, powerful Word of God. Stephen Lawson says that when we are hooked up to this book in humility and repentance and faith, there is a surge of energy that enters into our soul. Remember this, that the Word of God is also the Word of His grace. Like it says in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Note the little word and which couples all of these attributes together in verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. (laughs) The Word does not just have one attribute, but all of them together. It's not living for some and active for others. It's a package deal. It's all or nothing. See, the Word of God has an incisive and penetrating quality. It's sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. 
It is two-edged. There is no blunt side. Every book in the Bible is razor sharp. Every chapter is razor sharp. Every verse is razor sharp. Every word can cut deeply because it's two-edged. It cuts both ways. It both comforts the afflicted and it conflicts the comfortable. It both tears down and it builds up. It both convicts and converts. It has both good news and bad news. It both saves and it condemns. It heals and it hardens. It, it both makes alive and it puts to death. I love this passage because verse 13 says, But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing that is hidden from God. He sees our heart. He knows how to touch it. And we must give account for how we respond to His touch. Laid bare reminds us of the way God saw through Adam, excuse me, His feeble hiding. God sees through our hiding the same way. We can't hide from God. The word open translates the ancient Greek word trakaliso. Trakaliso. It's only used here in the New Testament. It was used of wrestlers who had put a hold that involved gripping the neck that was so powerful that it brought about victory. You know, we might call it a sleeper hold today or something like that, but it was so powerful by gripping the neck. And so the word can mean to prostrate, to overthrow, but many scholars do adopt the simple meaning of open in the sense of laying an opponent open and overcome. Remember the context here. The writer to the Hebrews trusts that he has pierced the hearts of his audience who thought about giving up on Jesus. And in this passage, he makes it clear that they can't give up on Jesus and keep it hidden from God. The Word of God discovers and exposes their condition. The Word of God discovers and exposes the conditions of our hearts. Look at verse 14. Moving on, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So he says, Let us be diligent to enter that race so that no one will fall and, and follow the same example of disobedience. And then he says, Let us hold fast our confession. The idea that Jesus is our high priest was mentioned before in Hebrews 2.17 and also in chapter 3, verse 1. But now the idea is being developed more extensively. The writer to the Hebrews calls attention to the specific, unique character of Jesus as our high priest. I mean, no other high priest was called great. He was our great high priest. No other high priest passed through the heavens. No other high priest is the Son of God. 
not just a priest, nor a high priest, but a great high priest. He is setting Jesus above all else. Let me just give you a a quick, brief history of the priesthood. Back in the day, first, the priesthood was every man. You think about Noah was a priest to his family and to others. Abraham, same, same thing. Isaac, Jacob, Job, they were all priests. So every man was a priest. And the first name priest that we have is Melchizedek. The word in Hebrew, uh, Melech, is the word king. Uh, Siddiqui is, is the word righteous. And so Melchizedek means the priest, excuse me, the king of righteousness. And so um, Abraham offered uh, offerings to Melchizedek. And then came the tribe of Levi, uh, especially Aaron's family. Then along came David, and he divided it into 24 classes, and, and that continued on after the captivity until the time of Jesus. And all these priests prefigured the great high priest who offered one sacrifice for sins once for all. Now, there is no human priesthood, but the term is giving to all believers that we are a priesthood of believers. He is the great high priest who passed through the heavens. That is, and that is really speaking of his ascension. He came to earth in the incarnation, be, being the son of God. And, and then he was uh, raised and, 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 and ascended into heaven. And in the perfect tense, that, that's how this is written. It means completed action. It means he has passed through the heavens and is still there. We have difficulty relating to the concept today of of a high priest. But to the Jews, it was an important office. Because Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest. He was the mediator between the people and God. He and his fellow priests offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people. They had to follow a detailed procedure spelled out by God. Any variance or innovation really meant instant death. As Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, discovered when they offered strange fire on the altar. In Levi chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, you can read about that. See, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest alone would go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for all the sins of the nation. If he entered there improperly or at any other time, he would die, according to Leviticus 16. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in the very presence of God. And when he came out alive, the people heaved a sigh of relief because it meant that God had accepted their sacrifice for their sins for another year. See, Jesus is not just another high priest in the line of Aaron. Rather, he is our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. 
rather than entering the Holy of Holies in the temple, He has passed through the heaven in His ascension into the very presence of Almighty God. See, the Jews thought of the sky as the first heaven and the the stars as the second heaven and the, the presence of God as the third heaven. Now, whether the author has that in mind or is just using heavens in the plural because the Hebrew word is always plural, we cannot say for certain. But his point is that Jesus, our great high priest, is unlike any merely human high priest. He has entered into the very presence of God. No earthly priest would dare sit in the Holy of Holies. They always stood, but Jesus, (laughs) our great high priest, sits at the right hand of God's throne because once for all, He made atonement for our sins, yours and mine. So Jesus is a great high priest in a class all by Himself because His office as a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, I mean, which the author will explain further in, in following chapters. It's wonderful to know that we have a high priest and how unique and glorious he is. It is even greater to know that he passed through the heavens and he has now ascended into heaven and now ministers there for our sake. Both these truths should encourage us to hold fast to our confession. But look at verse 5, or excuse me, 15. We're going to be wrapping this up here in just a little bit. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet, yet without sin. See, all Christians struggle with two crucial areas that will make or break us in the Christian life. Perseverance in times of trial and prayer. As you know, they're connected. (laughs) A vital prayer life is essential to enduring trials. Failure to endure in trials is the mark of the seed sown on rocky soil. Jesus explained that this seed represents those who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but they are only temporary And then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Mark 4, verse 17. You see, endurance is one mark of genuine saving faith. Listen, I want you to understand something today. Prayer is our supply line to God in the battle. His abundant, sustaining grace flows to us through prayer. Because prayer is so vital, the enemy tries to sever that supply line. When we suffer, the enemy whispers something like this, God doesn't care about you, and He isn't answering. Why waste your time with these worthless prayers? See, it's easily... It it is easy for us to get discouraged and to quit praying, which cuts us off from the very help that we need. 
There are two commands here. Hold fast to our confession. In other words, persevere, hang on, and draw near with confidence. In other words, pray. They are both based on the truth about who Jesus is. Since Jesus is our great high priest, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, we must hold fast to our confession. And since Jesus is a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, we should draw near to the throne of grace for help in our times of need. So his transcendence, his, his coming to us to, and going to the right hand of the Father on the throne and his humanity are both essential elements in his unique effectiveness as our high priest. So far, the writer of Hebrews was careful to document both the deity of Jesus while careful also to remember his compassionate humanity. It means that Jesus, the Son of God, enthroned in heaven, our high priest, can sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, to the ancient Greeks, the primary attribute attribute of God was apatheia, the essential inability to feel anything at all. But listen, Jesus isn't like that. He knows and He feels what we go through. The ancient Greek word translated sympathize literally means to suffer along with. What makes the difference is that Jesus added humanity to His deity and lived among us. And when you've been there, it makes all the difference in the world. You know, we might hear of some tragedy in our world and we might feel a a measure of sorrow. But it's nothing like the pain we would feel if it happened, let's say, in our community or in our on our job site. It goes the pain goes much deeper. See, Jesus can sympathize with our weakness and our temptation, but he cannot sympathize with our sin. We should not think that this makes Jesus less sympathetic to us and that he could understand us better if he had sinned himself. But think about this. Do not imagine that if Jesus, our Lord, had sinned, that he would be any more tender toward you because sin always has a hardening nature. If Christ could have sinned, he would have lost the perfection of his sympathetic nature. Oh, understand, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted and to battle against sin, though he was never stained by sin. That's an important fact. Jesus never sinned, but I have. Look briefly at 16, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, the throne of God is a throne of grace. And when we come, we obtain mercy. That is not getting what we deserve. We obtain mercy, not getting what we deserve. But we also find grace. That is getting what we don't deserve in our time of need. You know, ancient Jewish rabbis, they taught that God had two thrones. 
one of mercy and one of judgment. They said this because they knew that God was both merciful and just, but they could not reconcile those two attributes of God. They thought that maybe God had two thrones to display these two aspects of His character. On one throne He showed judgment, on the other throne mercy. But here, in light of the finished and accomplished, completed work of Jesus, we see mercy and judgment reconciled into one, the throne of grace. Remember that grace does not ignore God's justice. Actually, it operates in fulfillment of God's justice in light of the cross where Jesus died. It says here to find grace to help in time of need. Thankfully, thankfully God provides help in our time of need. No request is too small because He wants us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4.6 See, another truth that we find in this passage as I wrap this up, and I know I'm, I'm almost done, is that God calls us to boldly, boldly approach Him in prayer because of the kind of priest that Christ is. Not only does He want us to continue believing because of the kind of priest that Christ is, He also wants us to do something that would have boggled the minds of the saints at Sinai. He wants us to boldly approach Him in prayer because of the kind of priest that Christ is. See, the author argues that we are invited to pray with freedom and boldness to God. This is a massive change from the religion of the Old Covenant. You remember the scene at Sinai. Moses, you and the elders come forward, but tell the people to keep away from the mountain, because if they or an animal of theirs touches the mountain, he will be struck down. You remember the command about the ark? No one touches the ark, and only the Levites, only the specified Levites, and they carry it on a pole. And if anyone touches the ark, they will be struck down, just like Uzzah. And now, we are being told to boldly approach the throne. Oh my gosh! What's the change? What's the reason? Look here at verse 16. Let us draw near with confidence. There's the old covenant people, and they're told to keep your distance. Now we're being told, we're being called near. Why? Because of the kind of priest that Christ is. His priesthood establishes a real fellowship between God and His people. Whereas the old covenant priest could only shadow and only foreshadow that kind of fellowship. The writer is saying that we, because of the kind of priest we have, we have a new kind of freedom with the God of the universe. We may speak freely our minds with Him in prayer. Notice he says that we come, may come to Him in boldness to the throne of grace. We're not just drawing near to the throne of a sovereign. We're drawing near to the throne, which is the throne of grace. We must never, ever forget that. 
We're going to draw near to the Lord in a way never experienced before under the old covenant. We are going to draw near freely. We are going to be able to speak and lift our petitions to draw near to that throne, which is now the throne of grace because grace reigns. Now with confidence does not mean proudly, does not mean arrogantly or with presumption. It means that we may come constantly without reservation, freely and without fancy words, with confidence and persistence. I really like the way John Piper's analogy that when he says that prayer is like our walkie-talkie to get the supplies we need in the spiritual battle, in the spiritual war that we are engaged in. It's not an intercom to call the maid to bring extra beverages to the, to the den. In other words, prayer isn't to make us comfortable and cozy, oblivious to the advancement of God's kingdom purposes. You see, prayer is our walkie-talkie to bring in the needed supplies as we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Listen, today if you're under fire in the battle, my encouragement to you is to persevere. Hold fast to your confession because Jesus is our great high priest. If you have needs, my encouragement today to you is to pray. Draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in the battle. Oh, how we need help in the battle on this side of Jordan. Folks, I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. You know, next week we'll continue our study in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, talking more about our great and perfect high priest. Until then, stay safe, practice good hygiene, stay studied in God's Word. I encourage you to eat well, but also get some exercise. Get out there and walk and do the things that you need to do. But whatever you do, give God all the praise and glory and honor that is due His name. Folks, let's make His name famous. During these times, know that I love you. I'm praying for you. Pray for one another. Reach out. I love you. And doggone it, I miss each one of you. By the way, here's the payoff for listening to the whole thing. Memorial weekend, that Sunday afternoon, we're planning a little outdoor get-together, and uh, we'll practice social distancing. But uh, if your friends and other people don't know about it, they didn't listen to the whole podcast. We'll be putting information out about it. It's not a secret, but we're encouraging people to come out and uh, see one another and uh, eat together. Um, We'll talk to you soon. Uh, God bless you.